and greetings and welcome to The Dividing Line. We're back uh, here in where we've been since 2006, actually. Um, yeah, right about 16 years now we've uh, been in here. It didn't look like this at the start. We had a window back there and um, a, a prototype shelf in the corner that I'm really surprised did not just collapse during one of the programs at some point, just for the fun of it. Um, <clears throat> but... Um, Yes, so now we we return uh, for three months, um, <clears throat> basically, before we head up to Colorado, <clears throat> Jason Lyle, and I will be doing a um, seminar together up there in uh, Colorado. Really looking forward to that. Love Jason, smartest man I've ever met, and uh, <clears throat> just a, a wonderful brother, and... Um, the 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 most amazing combination of intelligence and humility that I've ever come across, and so it's it's um, it's great to spend time with Jason and going up to our old haunts there in Colorado. A little bit of high altitude riding, uh, uh, just to <clears throat> hopefully clear the lungs out because I can certainly use it uh, while we're up there. Hope it's not man. Last year it was it was the Smoky Mountains, not the Rocky Mountains. <laughs> it was bad. I mean, you could just cut the cut the air with a knife uh last year uh hopefully it won't <clears throat> won't be happening this time around uh as we are up there in uh, august and then in september heading back to dc uh, museum of the bible g3 hope you've got your your stuff ready to go and i'm not sure if i can actually announce the now i really can't <clears throat> let's just say that right now the plans are you'll be doing something fun on the way back and i forgot to ask if i could announce it uh but we'll I'll I'll be the smart one and not do that for right now. Uh, something cool on the way back. It's going to be a long trip. Uh, it's looking at it'll it'll definitely be the longest we've ever done distance wise. Uh, probably uh, close to forty five, forty six hundred miles. Uh, maybe close to five thousand ones. Eh, it's probably be closer to five thousand once I get done with it. Uh, <clears throat> but time wise, it's going to be really difficult to bring that one in under five weeks. Five weeks on the road, that's a long time, long, long time. Uh, but uh, that's how we're doing it, and that uh, means hopefully we'll be able to be visiting a few churches along the way. When you've got a long distance to travel, uh, sometimes you got to push some of those days. Don't like to, but but there it goes. That's, uh, that's how, how things go today. I want to start off with a couple of uh, uh, book recommendations. I normally don't do that. But obviously, it, it always works this way. Like two days after I left... My box of Ruler of Kings by Joseph Boot came in. It's a very nice picture, Joe, uh, on the back. And um, uh, it's got my endorsement uh, on the back as well as in the front, actually. And I was very glad that actually inside you've got two endorsements. Mine says history. Now, I don't think anyone from the Nevada Highway Patrol is listening right now. So I'm probably okay with this. But I wrote this while driving, okay? This wasn't... So, you, I'm doing voice dictation. But you know how voice dictation is. You, you've got to edit voice dictation. It's just going to be... So I did this while driving. That's pretty... Now, I was in the middle of nowhere. The only... If, if I had gone off the road, the only thing I would have killed would have been a stray lizard because they're just... There's a reason why they, they explode nuclear bombs out there. There's <laughs> nothing there. Um, I didn't want to get too far off the road because I've seen some movies about the results of 
exploding nuclear bombs and things like that. So it's not good. Anyway, <clears throat> so I, I wrote this uh, using voice dictation quite some time ago now. History teaches us that enduring works of Christian insight flow forth from times of persecution and attack. As secularism rushes toward its inevitable totalitarian solutions, Christians need to think deeply concerning the issues that now confront us. Ruler of Kings reminds us that Christ's scepter of power rules over all of life and that he will inevitably receive the inheritance of nations, a must-read in our day. James R. White, apologist, theologian, and author, director of Alpha and Omega Ministries in Phoenix, and I suppose for the issue of transparency, I'm also a fellow of the Ezra Institute, which is what Joe heads up, so there you go. But right above mine uh, is an endorsement from a guy who only got to read this book because I snuck it to him. I did get permission, but I thought he would want to read this. And he did, and he loved it. And he wrote, Astounding, without a doubt, Ruler of Kings gets my vote for the most necessary book for the church today. Not only are there very few books written on the Lordship of Christ in the civil, ethical, and political realm, I can think of none that expound upon it so thoroughly and with such vision. Every few pages, I couldn't help shouting to my wife, this is the book we've been waiting for. Who's that? John Cooper, American musician, singer, songwriter, and co-founder, lead vocalist, and bassist of the Christian band Skillet. Yes, as soon as I got done listening, because that's how I did it while I was driving, listening to Ruler of Kings, and I listened to it more than once, um, I, I sent it to, uh, sent it to, to the coop. Uh, to the dog, doggy, and um, he loved it, and it uh, it rocked his world. So, Ruler of Kings available uh, uh, from Ezra Institute and wherever you get your fine books online, et cetera, et cetera. Um, highly, highly recommend. Uh, Mission of God is uh, very, very similar, but it's five hundred pages longer, and this was written, I, I think. You know, when we think about, uh, like, Second Timothy, Paul is has already been under persecution. He's expecting his life to end at any point in time. That, that sort of focuses your writing. And uh, Joe Boot wrote this during the severity of the lockdowns in Canada. They were, they were arresting pastors right, left, and center. And he was expecting that. And I think that really gives you some clarity of thought. You cut through some of the fog. And so... Um, Joseph Boot, ruler of kings, need to get it. <clears throat> I told the story before. This is a one. This is the uh, second volume of an entire set. Um, and if it has this J R Big W in it, yeah, May of 1985. May of 1985. Uh, this was the B.B. Warfield set, the collected works. The works of Benjamin Breckenridge Warfield. Most people don't know it's Breckenridge, but it is. Benjamin Breckenridge Warfield. I, uh, I, in hindsight, uh, this was a spiritual for material trade on my part. <laughs> I traded a Ruger Super Blackhawk 44 Magnum for this set of books. Now, I'm glad I had them. Um, but I'm not sure I got the, the good end of that deal, monetarily speaking, but I did. And, uh, I got them from my dear friend, Jeff Neal, and that was, ooh, 16 years, 
Yeah, that'd be 16 years before he and I put out the same-sex controversy. My goodness, we've known each other forever. Wow. Yeah, oh, I know, I know, I know, I know. Um, anyway, I cut my teeth on Warfield. You know, today, they're, you know, apologetically, uh, you know, he was definitely not a presuppositionalist. Um, of course, he's before Van Til, but still contemporaneous with uh, most of the great thinkers that influenced Van Til. There would be some areas where, you know, but on the Trinity and on inspiration, um, I will forever be indebted to B.B. Warfield. And, of course, <clears throat> if you know anything of his life, uh, his wife's health, he could have produced so much more. But he was absolutely faithful to his marriage vows and uh, cared for an invalid wife his, his entire life. And so there were many things he didn't get to do that other people did and accepted that as part of God's providence. Anyway, um, Warfield on the Trinity, I was reminded recently, I saw one of the uh, new <clears throat> scholastics, the Reformed Thomas, uh, criticizing Warfield. And it, it all of a sudden clicked for me. Well, no wonder they don't like me. Uh, if they don't like Warfield, they're not going to like me because I've been open in admitting my dependence upon Warfield. In fact, I think, if I'm not mistaken, <clears throat> yeah, yeah, here's the section. Um, I, I quote this in the Forgotten Trinity. Uh, biblical, this is Biblical Doctrine of the Trinity in the Collected Works, page 144. We cannot speak of the Doctrine of the Trinity, therefore, if we study, study exactness of speech as revealed in the New Testament, any more than we can speak of it as revealed in the Old Testament. The Old Testament was written before its revelation, the New Testament after it. The revelation itself was made not in word, but in deed. It was made in the incarnation of God the Son, the outpouring of God the Holy Spirit. The relation of the two testaments to this revelation is in the one case, that of preparation for it, and the other, that of product of it. The revelation itself is embodied just in Christ and the Holy Spirit. This is as much as to say that the revelation of the Trinity was incidental to and the inevitable effect of the accomplishment of redemption. It was in the coming of the Son of God in the likeness of sinful flesh to offer himself a sacrifice for sin, and the coming of the Holy Spirit to convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment, that the trinity of persons in the unity of the Godhead, Godhead was once for all revealed to men. Uh, just, I, I remember, I was in, I think I may have still been in Bible college, because uh, I graduated in 80, so as I, graduated, I got this the same month I graduated from Bible college, so before going to seminary. And, I just remember where I was in the little apartment that we paid $275 a month for, as I recall, um, on uh, Pasadena Drive in Phoenix. Um, and I remember reading that section, and my markings are still there. And uh, just having the lights turned on and the the doors opened and the windows opened and the light flooding in. And so if one of the things that's beautiful about uh, Warfield's explanation is it's so biblically grounded. And if you've read the Forgotten Trinity, how do I start? I'm a biblical Trinitarian. And that's why I, I'm telling you right now, that's there's there's my source of influence. And if you're more orthodox than Warfield was in the Trinity, well, congratulations to you.
<laughs> but you're not more biblically orthodox. That's a problem. You may be more scholastic, but you're not. And biblical orthodoxy is the only thing I'm overly concerned about. It's rather important. So uh, Warfield on the Trinity. Get, get it, read it. And of course, Warfield's uh, article on Theonustos, even though one guy a couple of years ago tried to do an entire paper saying he was completely wrong about that, talk about face planning. It was really bad. Uh, it's still one of the best things out there. And so I would highly recommend it to, to everybody. I'll be looking at these other books when we get into another, another subject. Uh, <clears throat> before we dive into uh, a couple of quotations, audio quotations, um, oh, goodness. Uh, I just happened to notice that the, uh, that, uh, uh Carmen, uh, just texted me on, uh, on, um, uh, Twitter. Whatever happened to the invite to come on your channel? <laughs> I guess the big thing is channel, uh, your channel, my channel, Go on that channel, have a few pints with Aquinas, and all the rest of that kind of fun stuff. That's the big thing. Well, I'll, I'll tell you what. Um, uh, why don't you um, – let me see what I've got here. Why don't you listen to what I have to say today, and if you want to talk about it, we'll be glad to do that. Um, I just haven't gotten the feeling from everything that I've heard you saying that you had any interest in that, and you've been rather dismissive of any of us who have tried to warn you about the direction you were going. So I just really didn't think that was much of an issue. Um, these are vitally important topics, and um, anyway, uh, we'll be talking about that in just a moment. But first, um, going scrolling back here just a little bit, just see what I'm missing. Hard not to uh, make reference to what happened last night. Uh, my first tweet on it was, I think they broke the internet. Uh, once the Politico story came out, it was just like, Ukraine's gone, inflation's gone, um, everything's gone because of what happened last evening. There are so many questions that are going to have to be answered, so many questions that we don't yet have the answers to. Uh, who, why, there are lots of theories running around. Uh, it's an unprecedented violation of the sanctity of the court's inner workings. Uh, I do not believe a preliminary finding like this, uh, a majority uh, opinion, has ever been leaked. Uh, and of course, in our day, once something is leaked like that, it's it's out there in a second. And of course, it has been confirmed. Uh, Roberts came out in the day and said, yep, that that's what's going around, but um, they're going to be launching an investigation. Uh, obviously, fingers have been pointed at one particular law clerk, Page, for Sotomayor, who, of course, we know is a radical leftist. Um, probably not as radical as the new radical leftists that will be on the court uh, coming up. And we have to remember that what we're seeing from the left right now, just the vile things you're seeing from the left, the the insanity, the screaming, the, the hair-on-fire craziness, um, their worldview does not provide them with any restraint. Uh, abortion is the sacrament of their religion. 
um, unrestrained sexual activity is the central theme. Uh, utter rejection of any divine restraint upon human beings is just that's just that's just a given. You can't you can't get past any of these things, and so you. I mean, everybody who knows anything about what's what's happening knows that this is not this does not re, re, result in the abolition of 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 abortion in the United States. Wish it did. Now it goes to the now it goes to the states. So I here in Arizona, I'm really angry with the pro life lobby here in Arizona because a year and a half ago they got rid of the law that was on the books in Arizona that made abortion illegal. Now since then, I think the governor has signed. Um, a sort of heartbeat level bill or something, if I recall correctly. So there would be something. But abortion as a whole was against the law until the pro-life lobby traded that out for an incremental idea, uh, which will have to be addressed. But the point is, this doesn't mean that abortion is abolished in the United States. I wish it did, uh, but it doesn't. And it means that it will go to the states and you will have more and more of a division in the United States of America. And it's inevitable. It's absolutely inevitable. The coasts uh, versus the the inland uh, states, there will be a tremendous division. And, uh, you know, places like Amazon have have already started paying. Uh, they, they They will give money to employees to travel to a state where they can murder their children. And every time I buy something from Amazon, I wish I did I didn't have to, but to be honest, these days they've become a monopoly. There are certain certain things that if you if you want to get it, if you want to make something work, that's where you're going to get it. You know, sometimes you can go directly to the manufacturers, but especially with the supply chain issues, um you sort of wonder how that all is working out, huh? Yeah, it was pretty purposeful. Anyway, so that's the division that's coming. Uh, but the the behavior that you're seeing from people, the the vile hatred, and, and, and if you've noticed, Libs of TikTok posted a video. It's hard to watch. Foul language. Astonishing the filth of the tongues of those who wallow in the culture of death. Just, it's astonishing. They, they can't, many of these people cannot get through two sentences without dropping all sorts of F-bombs and everything else in the process. Uh, it's just, it expresses their soul, their heart. But these people expressing their hatred of unborn children. There is a Libs of TikTok video about uh, should we burn uh, aborted babies to create electricity? And and they're all just going, well, why not? Yeah, let's let's do more of it. And I, I mean, just the this you you really it's to the point where you're going. Yeah, so somebody kicked open the door of hell, and all the demons are running around because you you couldn't the self destructive. I mean, I've always said that I don't think God has to expend any energy whatsoever to punish anyone in hell. 
when you take a creature made in his image and you remove all restraints from that creature, then that hatred, which is currently restrained by God, and currently that hand of restraint is being lessened great, a great deal. And you're not going to know of anybody else in hell. You're going to be alone. People thinking we're going to have a big old party in hell. No, you're going to be alone. Not going to see anybody else. You may hear their screams, but you're not going to hear anybody else. Uh, meet anybody else. You want to lash out with your entire being at God, as these people are right now. But there's nothing left to lash out against. The only thing left that is made in the image of God is yourself. And I can't conceive of the depths of that suffering. But it's self-inflicted. God doesn't have to be, there doesn't have to be, um, you know, devils running around with pitchforks or any of that kind of medieval foolishness. Um, I think that's really what we're talking about when we talk about hell. Anyway, um, so we're seeing this taking place all around us, and the we don't exactly know how to how to deal with it because first of all, it's Romans one right in front of us. It's a fulfillment of everything Scripture says, and yet we also know that unless God had been merciful to us, that's where we would be. But we know these people hate children, and, and which means they really hate themselves because they were children. I, I mean, it, it's just, it's a difficult time um, to know exactly how to respond to all these things. If, in fact, this is an attempt to bring tremendous pressure to bear against uh, the five justices who have voted for this, you know, I would like to think, because Roberts isn't listed, um, I would like to think that what might happen here, I'd love to see his boomerang. I'd love to see him so angry that someone tried to fundamentally uh, destroy the court in this way. Uh, that um, he will actually go with the majority and make it 6-3. Uh, just simply say, no, you're not doing that. That'd be wonderful. Uh, but the, the the concerns are pressures against the justices. And then the other thing is to create massive pressure against uh, what have turned out to be the two Democrats that have kept the Democrats from just simply running our nation into the ground already. Um, Joe Manchin, West Virginia. West Virginia is not... <laughs> West Virginia is is not exactly the most liberal state on the planet. Um, so if he wants to continue his political career, he he's got to. And it seems like he actually has some kind of worldview backbone in some areas, anyways. And then I'm from Arizona, folks. <laughs> and every time I look at one of our, our at our, she's the is she's. She's not the senior senator, is she? Oh, my goodness. Mm-hmm. She is. Oh, my gosh. The senior senator from the great state of Arizona, Kirsten Cinema. The first openly bisexual um, senator of the United States. Uh, yeah. 
So if the idea is to put pressure on those two, that may work. I don't know. I don't know. To get rid of the filibuster so they can then ram through not only the Equality Act, but ram through a Roe v. Wade replacement, turn it into law, turn it into national law. Um, that's what they want to do. And they, it's never been possible in the past because of the uh, Senate and its rules. You actually have to do, you actually have to get people on the other side to agree with you. So you can't have just one party rule. Well, that's what they want to get rid of. They want one party rule. They have it in California. They're getting it in other states. Got it in New York pretty much. Uh, they want it in the United States as well. So they can absolutely, completely undo the Constitution. That's, that's their goal. So we'll see. Because, man, the people that I see, the absolute lack of mature thought, self-control, and simple sanity, morals and ethics going on right now is amazing. Yes, sir. What was interesting to me is that what I read last night shows that it wasn't just the document that was, was leaked. There's actually a discussion of the temperament of each of where, where each of the justices are at and why. And Roberts specifically was referred to as they didn't know which way he was going to go and that he's trying to bring both sides together, which I don't know how he does that. But he's trying to make this middle ground position and not take a position. And well, don't do I, I that here. My understanding was that's why he was on the minority side is because the position enunciated in the actual opinion written by Alito is the end of Roe and Casey and Toto. Right. I mean, not just a modification. Yeah. Flush that sucker down the toilet. It's, we were it's wrong just start. flat out calls it bad law. Yep. Yep. But. But the the depiction on Politico that I read last night, kind of, I got the impression that he wasn't really wanting to vote with the liberals, but he doesn't want to vote with Alito either. So he's he's in no man's land. Well, like I said, this could this could give him the reason to go ahead and vote with the majority, and you know, he'll write his own opinion and try to uh, rescue the precedent idea. But yeah, yeah, we'll see. We will see. We pray, and we pray that we will be able to respond to the demonic explosion in our country uh, with gospel-centered grace and no compromise. Not easy to do. I'm not going to sit here and tell you that I know exactly how to do it or that I will do it exactly right, because I won't, but that's what we need to pray for. All right. Uh, my daughter keeps re- responding to people <clears throat> on uh, Twitter today. Abortion is murder. Don't argue with my daughter right now about that subject. I would highly recommend to you. Um, um, I'm, we were very, very yesterday, very, very, very thankful. Uh, she posted um, pictures of my uh, soon-to-be uh, grandson, um, who is due to be born September 2nd. And uh, he's doing great. Uh, she uh, appreciate prayers for that pregnancy. She's had two miscarriages in a row, and so we've been praying very uh, hard that the Lord would uh, grant this little booger um, a healthy pregnancy and a healthy delivery. And uh, you know, she's still got some time to go. Uh, little little buns got to stay in the oven, uh, but. Um, uh, 
you know, we had just gotten that word yesterday. So now, now's not a good time to be telling a mama who's uh, who's got a little baby boy in there kicking her her ribs apart. Um, that uh, that's that's not that's that's just a blob of cells. Um, no, don't think so. I'm sorry. No, no, don't mess with summer right now. Uh, actually, you, you should never mess with summer, but especially right now. That would be uh, that would be very very highly unwise, um, as people on Twitter are probably <laughs> discovering <laughs> right about now. All right, <clears throat> so I was directed to a conversation on um, that took place. Actually, I think I pulled this down from Facebook, if I'm recalling correctly. Um, Braxton Hunter at Trinity Bible College and Seminary. Um, yeah, I'm just looking at this. Uh, yeah, because I I'm, I was looking around for the um, YouTube link, and there was a, there. It might be on YouTube someplace. I don't know. I don't know. But this was. Oh wait a minute! No, no, it is on YouTube. Never mind. Mink, mink, mink. So this was posted. It's Trinity. So it's Trinity Radio, and it was why. Well, it's got less than 2,000 views, so it can't be all that old. Um, I I don't know why, recently, I've had more and more trouble. There it is. You really have to pull YouTube way out. It's for some reason, thinks that the date of the posting is not relevant, and it was today. Um. I just don't know why. Maybe, yeah, see right there. I just pushed it back in and the date disappeared. Why does it do that? That, 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 that is very bothersome. Anyway, so it is on the, uh, if you just want, if you want, want people to be able to watch the whole thing, it's on Trinity Radio. So you just put in Trinity Radio, it'll come up May 3rd. So it's today. Um, what will Catholicism cost Cameron? Cameron Bertuzzi of Capturing Christianity. Uh, was on with Braxton Hunter on the Trinity uh, channel. And so I listened to it, and, you know, obviously for quite some time, I've forgotten how many times now we have addressed some of the, you know, uh, Cameron had uh, this Australian Roman Catholic fellow on his program a couple times, and we... We played some segments of that, some sections of that, and we've talked about solo scriptura and about providing various answers to these things. And there is a... Uh, obviously, I believe there's a place for meaningful interaction. We've done, I've lost track, over 30 moderated public debates since August of 1990 with uh, Jimmy Aiken. Well, J- actually... Jimmy Aiken in person, no. Um, we did a radio debate once. But Tim Staples, Patrick Madrid, um, uh, individuals like that. Jerry Matatix, of course, 13 different times. And um, we did the great debate series on Long Island for a full decade, as I recall. So Gary Machuta and, uh, of course, Mitch Paco and I have done, I think, five, maybe six, uh, debates and those are the ones I'd recommend to people. They are they're the best because uh, you know Mitch 
doesn't play games. He's not not trying to you know just prove himself to be real smart because everybody knows he already is. Um, you know stuff like that. Uh, so we've we've just done a lot of debates over the years. Robertson Jenis, we've done a lot. I think five debates with uh, with Bob over the years. And <clears throat> so we've addressed the issue of the papacy, sola scriptura, the Marian dogmas, all sorts of things uh, down through the years. And so as I heard these conversations going, there, you know, there's all this. YouTube has created all this um, space for conversation. Well, obviously, I'm not against conversation, but I think that it has to have a particular purpose. And I think it has to have particular goals. And I don't think that people should be engaging in these conversations when they themselves are not actually rooted and grounded in what they believe. And it was just painfully obvious. Uh, I remember... Uh, I think we talked about John Six, and and there was this going back. This Matt Frad, I think was the guy's name, and it was just, I was very clear in saying to Cameron, it just doesn't sound like you really know what you believe. You, you're the, you're not theologically formed. I'm not sure what you're doing, doing apologetics, and that's one of the issues. This one of the one of the things here is, he's approaching this as a philosophical question, doing Bayesian statistical analysis of arguments. And that's not why I do apologetics. I'm a biblical Trinitarian. I believe in a biblical gospel. I do apologetics because I believe the Bible is the word of God. And that's not just one of my beliefs. That's the belief that allows me to do all the other of my beliefs. (laughs) Um, Because God has spoken. If God hasn't spoken, it's your opinion versus my opinion. If if the Bible isn't enough, then it's that interpreter versus that interpreter. There's, There's really no sense in doing all this stuff. And that's why I don't think I don't happen to enjoy sitting around um, pretending I'm having a scotch with um, somebody else that's from some other perspective um, and having a bunch of people watch it. I, I don't find that to be anything overly exciting. Anyway, so I, I listened to the whole whole discussion and there was a lot that I wanted to respond to. But again, I had to think about um, the fact that since I've been back from my trip, I'm doing some coughing. I'm, that's why I'm drinking a little bit more, trying to keep the voice from going too crazy. And what would be most useful to people? What would be, what would be most helpful? And so uh, we're going to listen to some of the comments here, uh, provide some responses, and... Uh, go from there and hopefully this will be helpful to everybody. So this is about mm, yeah, it's 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 not quite the halfway mark of the the conversation. This is actually 20 just under 21 minutes <clears throat> into the conversation. So let's uh let's listen. But there was another so the Eucharist is something like that I have had a sort of metaphorical view of the Eucharist. But what I realized recently is that even if it's a you, you take a metaphorical reading of John six, and John six is the one is the verse where Jesus says, "You have got to eat my flesh. You've got to eat my or drink leaves. my blood." <laughs> yeah, and so like, but I I still to this day I have a metaphorical view of that reading uh, of that text. But what I realized 
is that that's actually compatible with like the real presence view or like mm. the, the Catholic view, because mm. that's not even about the Last Supper in John 6. Mm. It, it's not a Last Supper narrative. So you could take a metaphorical reading of that, but then still hold that when it actually comes to the Last Supper, Jesus was talking about his body and his blood. Mm-hmm. And so that's that's something that I've sort of changed my mind on recently, where I, I lean toward that view still, this metaphorical reading of John 6, but nevertheless, like I could still have that view. And then if I were to accept the papacy, then I would not like, it's not really an objection to Catholicism per se. Mm -hmm. So I thought it was like, Mm -hmm. I, for the longest time, I thought that no metaphorical reading of John six meant that Catholicism is probably not true. But then I came to realize, no, that's not the case. And I I came to that actually on my own. Like I just thought about it one day and I was like, wait a second, that doesn't actually follow. Like Mm -hmm. it's, there is a possible way, a possible out here for Catholicism and that, you could take a, a metaphorical reading of John 6 and then take a, a sort of literal reading of the, the Last Supper narratives in, I think it's in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So those actually are a couple of examples of doctrinal positions where you actually have already, if not become convinced, at least can see, okay, that's not as big of a problem as mm-hmm. I thought it was. Mm-hmm. Those are my big issues. The, that, that divine simplicity, the Eucharist, and there was one other one that I can't uh, think of off the top of my head. I'm not sure how you have three issues and can't remember what the third one is, but because you're not old enough. I, I can do that all the time. I'm old enough. Um, I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Um, just playing with Rich over there. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure. I, I'm completely lost, honestly, on the divine simplicity thing because that's not a Roman Catholic Protestant issue. Um. Now we're we're debating how far you take simplicity and what it means and application uh, amongst ourselves, actually. But the concept that God's not made up of parts—that's that's just a given. So I'm I'm sort of guessing that being heavily influenced by William Lane Craig, that he's thinking divine simplicity primarily in the context of the extended application from Thomas, maybe, um, whatever. But I would, first person I've ever encountered that, that thought simplicity was an, was a dividing issue between Protestants and Catholics. But anyway, and then odd that it would be, well, there's this one guy that came up with a way of defining it that I'm okay with. Well, I'm not sure if, if you're going to say that there's a certain doctrine of simplicity that is dogmatically de- demanded by Rome, that's going to be Thomas's view uh, specifically. So, but hey, philosophically, you can come up with anything you want in that area, if, you know, as long as you work hard enough. That, but notice the discussion of the Eucharist. It's not about John six. I mean, obviously, John six is John six defines itself. John, start start where Jesus starts. And he says, the one coming to me will never hunger. The one believing me will never thirst. He defines the hungering and the thirsting as coming and believing in him. That's, that's his own definition from the start. And yeah, it's not a Last Supper narrative, um, as you have in the Gospels or in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Uh, but it certainly has been used by the bishops of Rome as foundational to the entire concept 
of the mass as a propitiatory sacrifice. But <clears throat> here's the problem. I never hear Cameron showing that a biblical theology is his foundation for analyzing anything. The, the whole concept of the Eucharist is a direct, has direct impact upon what you believe about the issue of the atonement. What is the atonement? What did it accomplish? For whom was it made? Who is the high priest in the book of Hebrews? Why is there no sacerdotal priesthood anywhere in the New Testament? Because there isn't. And why is it that the one high priest offers Ephapox one time a sacrifice that perfects all those for whom it's made? And how does that therefore impact the whole concept of the mass, the propitiatory sacrifice, the idea that you, you know, what, the the, uh, the YouTube video is what would Catholicism cost Cameron Bertuzzi? Um, this is the issue. It costs you peace with God. It costs you peace with God because there is no finished work. You have the mass as a representation in an unbloody fashion of the sacrifice of Calvary, but it does not perfect those for whom it is made. And you can come to the Mass 10,000 times in your life, still die impure, and end up in purgatory, undergoing, undergoing the suffering of satispatio. And you can go to the cross 10,000 times in your life and commit a mortal sin before you die and go to hell. Now, do I think the current Pope believes any of that? No, I don't. But that's the point. Because I can guarantee you all the Popes before him did, or at least four or five back did, without any question. And so, so much for the infallible papacy and the continuity of the teaching office of the church and blah, 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 blah. Because anybody, that's the whole thing. Why would anybody be looking at Roman Catholicism right now? And even talking about, we're going to read, we're, we're going to listen to him here saying that his uh, Bayesian uh, analysis has the papacy at 85 to 90%. In the days of Francis... I mean, you know, when I first started saying Roman Catholicism, John Paul II, hey, he had been on the throne for a long time, right? And at least you could make some type of argumentation for continuity of, of teaching content. But you can't do that with Francis. You know, if you're honest, you know what this guy actually believes. And it's just such a ruse to sit back and go, yeah, but, you know, the Spirit won't let him teach that to the church. What do you mean? He has filled the College of Cardinals with his own acolytes. Is that not teaching the church? Will that not have more fundamental impact upon the direction of the church than anything he would have to say? Of course it will. It's just, it's just amazing these days. You know, I know how it was back in the 90s. Well, we have the Pope and we have the continuity of the teaching office and blah, 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 blah. You don't have that anymore. And there's a lot of people recognizing it. Uh, but I guess that doesn't fit into the you know, calculations or something. Uh, but there's no, there's no recognition of the theological content of the teaching of the Eucharist in the sense of what it really means, that there is no finished work, and that's why there is no peace. Any sin that you commit will be imputed to you. And here's, 
Here's the question. Um, I'll come back to this text in a second. But here's here's the, the question that I've been asking Roman Catholics for a very, very long time. And Cameron texted me, so hopefully he's listening or will listen. <clears throat> what is the cost? The cost is being the blessed man. The cost is being the blessed man. Romans chapter 4, verse 4. Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Now, there is a whole um, discussion. I've done entire presentations on this. You can go back and look at it in regards to how these two are parallel to one another, you notice, tode ergads ameno, to the one working, tode may ergads ameno, to the one not working, so they're in, they're in parallel to one another, and so the idea of working so as to receive, um, that is lagidzatai, it is imputed not according to Karen, grace, but according to ophilema, what is owed, what is due. But then the opposite of that, to the one not working, but believing. There's the issue. Sola fide. Not kicking the door open the entire sacramental system by saying, well, faith working through love. The contrast here is between Working and believing. That's different context, faith, working, love. There, uh, believes in the one justifying the ungodly, his faith is reckoned to him as righteousness. That faith, that empty hand of faith. And then when David also speaks, verse 6, of the blessing of the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. So, so notice, Paul's assertion is legizete de kaiasune, chorus ergon. God imputes righteousness apart from works. This is what God does. But it's fascinating, the text he quotes from Psalm 32, Psalm 33, it's subject. Um, when he quotes this material, look at what it's about. It, it's not about the imputation of righteousness. So did Paul miss it? No. Notice what it is. <coughs> Excuse me. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. So, lawless deeds, anemiae, hamartiae, sins and lawless deeds have been forgiven and covered over. And in verse 8, blessed is the man who who ooh may lagesetai kurios hamartion blesses the man to whom ume lagesetai er subjunctive strong denial the Lord will never will not impute sin. Now if you know Roman Catholic theology, and there are a lot of people who think they do, but they don't. I wasn't talking about Cameron here. 
if you know Roman Catholic theology, and you ask any believing Roman Catholic, if you commit a mortal sin, now there is no infallible definition of exactly what that means. And you'll get different definitions depending on what priest you talk to. But you commit a mortal sin. At least in Orthodox historic Roman Catholicism, Catholicism since Trent, uh, the grace of justification is destroyed. And you're no longer at peace with God. And you have to be re-justified. You have to go through penance, enter back into that state of friendship with God, sacramentally. If you die in that state, you'll be lost. Like I said, I, I really doubt the majority of the magisterium in the Roman Catholic Church actually believes this anymore, but it is what's taught. And you've got to deal with the fact that the leadership and what is taught in the allegedly infallible dogmatic documents don't quite meet up anymore. you got to deal with that. But that's teaching. If you commit a venial sin, which does not destroy the grace of justification, it's still imputed to you. And you have to bear the temporal punishments for that sin. And unless you're a saint and have more merit than you have temporal punishments, that's why you go to purgatory. But the point is, in Roman Catholicism, there is no blessed man. I really wish... Um, you know exactly what I'm talking about, don't you? You were just thinking about it, weren't you? Ha-ha! <laughs> 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 let me... Let, uh, hold on. Let me... Uh, develop theology of... Oh, this is long. Um, I don't know. It's worthwhile. I think it's worthwhile. Um, this is a cross-examination in 2001, 21 years ago, between myself and Father Peter Stravinskis. man has two PhDs from Ivy League schools. The subject is um, purgatory. It was probably one of the most enlightening debates I've ever had on justification. <laughs> what? So, do, do we think that he knows um, Roman Catholicism? You mean Stravinskis? Oh, yeah. Well, there would be people after that debate that would question that. <laughs> though, but, but, though I'll never forget the one guy in the audience that was talking to Michael Fallon, and uh, he heard him talking to this other guy, and he was a Roman Catholic, and he was saying... Oh, when, when Father Stravinskis would speak, it was just so spiritually and comforting and enlightening, and then White would speak, and you could see the demons dancing around his head. <laughs> yeah, that was, uh, yeah, that was the... But, you know, you get the idea here that, you know, the guy's got a little education. He, he kind of knows his stuff. Well, he's the editor of the Catholic Answer. So, so we, we go to watch this, and you... you I think we're getting a Roman Catholic perspective here, even in the case of someone stumped. Yeah, let's go ahead and listen to it. Let's go ahead and listen to it. Here we go. Augustine, who certainly had a very, very highly developed theology of Revelation, which is more than just Scripture for Augustine, uh, 
Augustine also would be very comfortable in saying at another point, Roma locuta est, causa finita est. Rome has spoken and the case is closed. And Sir, so, could you tell me where that's found? No, again, I don't have my little... Oh, is it not true that that's found in Sermon 131? Right. Have you ever looked at Sermon 131, sir? Yes, I have. I taught a course in Augustine. Thank okay. You. And are you aware that that phrase that you just quoted never appears in any text of Sermon 131? I, I can provide you with the actual Latin text if you want me to look it up. That does not appear. Uh, let, me just, let me just mention what this is all about. Uh, Augustine never said Rome, Rome locutas causa finitas. Okay. That's a, it's a common mythology. He had just accepted it. Uh, if you want to dig into more of that, uh, put in uh, sermon, sermo, or sermon, 131, in the search engine at aomin.org. It's a lengthy article, but it's fascinating. It's about Zosimus and the North Africans and Pelagius and uh, just all sorts of stuff. The point is, he was wrong. He was uh, quoting something that he had been taught in school, but had never looked it up. And I had, and I'm fairly certain that article had been written before our debate. And so the information was there. It was a little confusing during the debate. He didn't understand what I was saying, that that Augustine never said those words. So that's the background. Anywhere in uh, Sermon 131. Did I, you think I care about the number of it? It doesn't. No, no, sir. The, I'm sorry. Uh, the, the, the point I was making is you seem, you, you just made a quotation from Augustine. Yeah. And I'm challenging you that uh, while that is said to appear in Sermon 131, uh, that is a, one of the most common apologetic errors of Roman Catholic apologists. And what manuscript are you using? And the standard one used by uh, actually anyone, in fact. Uh, so I, but I, I can't, I would be glad to ex- explicate on that and provide you with the actual Latin, but that is uh, not uh, the text of what he said. But going back to what he did say, so you said that the church cannot teach anything contrary to Scripture. Would you say that that was Augustine's position, that the church then could teach something that the Scriptures were silent about? I would think he would be comfortable with that. So when he said, what more shall I teach you than what we read in the Apostle? For Holy Scripture fixes the rule for our doctrine, lest we dare to be wiser than we ought. Therefore, I should not teach you anything else except to expound to you the words of the teacher. Would you find that to be consistent or inconsistent with what you just said? I think the the point he is making there is precisely the point I, I had just made, that Scripture is a norma normans. It is a norm, norm, norming all others. You don't hear him saying that I should not teach you anything else except to expound to you the words of the teacher? Well, he would see that the church has an understanding of the words of the teacher, uh, a deeper appreciation as time goes on. Okay. Back to uh, the scriptural text in the uh, five minutes that we have left before our closing statements. Um, When in the book of Hebrews uh, we are told that Jesus Christ by his sacrifice, and specifically I'm looking here at uh, Hebrews chapter 10, uh, give you a specific reference here, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 10. uh, When the scripture says, for by this will uh, we have been uh, made holy, through the once-for-all offering of the body of Jesus Christ would be one rendering of the Greek text here. Um, What does it mean to you 
that we have been sanctified for by this one will? Uh, actually, I'm, I'm pleased that you brought up this idea about um, from, uh, from Hebrews because uh, one of the things that always concerns me in conversations like this is that uh, there seems to be such an emphasis on the redeeming element of Christ's death on Calvary that the total experience of the incarnation is lost sight of. So that one tends to focus on one particular moment and everything else of the mystery of the incarnation is cast into oblivion. Uh, Hebrews uh, 10.5 talks about the fact that it is the body that it, the body of Christ that he assumes in the mystery of the incarnation that saves the world. And therefore the entire mystery of Christ's life which is an embodied existence, which he has even now as the risen and ascended Lord. Uh, therefore, the incarnational principle is incredibly important. Uh, if we simply focus on, on the Lord's death, which is obviously critically important, but if that's the point of the redemption of the human race, then without sounding too blasphemous, we could say, that God wasted an awful lot, the God the Father wasted an awful lot of time by sending his son here for 33 years or 60 years, if you want to go with someone else's understanding, uh, when all he had to do was send him down for three hours uh, to die on a cross. What does uh, that have to do with the question that I asked? What does it mean uh, that by one, by this will, we have been sanctified? Well, let me back up. Where in Hebrews 10.5 does it say that his body saved the world, sir? A body you have given me. And where does that say it saved the world? That's the, that's the vehicle of the redemption of the world. Is the salvation of the world not through the offering of that body on the tree? It's the total Christ event. In Hebrews chapter 10, can you find the phrase, the total Christ event? I think we're being silly. Well, I, I'm, I'm simply pointing out, sir... He's quoting... He's quoting Psalm 40. Mm -hmm. You who wanted no sacrifice of obla or oblation prepared a body for me. Right. And where does it say then that, where, where does salvation come in here? Is it not verse 10? Is it not verse 14? For by one offering he is perfected for all time. The offering is his entire life, okay. death, and resurrection. So if it is in his entire life, and we believe that the positive righteousness that is imputed to us is the positive righteousness of Jesus Christ. If it is his entire life, then how then can you say that the, the righteousness that we have could in any way be incomplete, which would require us to go to a place called purgatory to suffer for the temporal punishments of our sins before we enter into the presence of God? You're the one that's talking about imputed righteousness. I'm not. You're not talking about imputed righteousness. Well, okay. So let me ask you one last question then. In Romans 4... Okay, did you catch that? Now, now here comes the Romans 4 part. Now, I'm sorry I didn't have this queued up. I just thought about it, and it, <laughs> I didn't mean to stop it right there. <clears throat> Father Stravinskis wanted to leave, <laughs> and we hadn't even gotten to the audience questions yet. Um, but yep. you're just so mean all the time in all your debates. You're just, you know, oh. Yeah, actually, I'm just Asking really um, calmly those pointed, sticky questions, porcupine-ish. <laughs> uh, obviously, he had never... Uh, really dealt with this issue on this level before. But anyway, 
So here comes Roman's fourth thing. But did you catch what he said? You're the one talking about imputed righteousness, not me. Catch that. There is no imputed righteousness. And anytime I talk to a person who calls himself a, a, a current Protestant, who is thinking about swimming the Tiber, becoming a Roman Catholic, I look at them and say, so you're going to trade the imputed righteousness of Christ as the, the, the sole foundation of your peace with God for the endless treadmill of the sacramental system of Rome. And that's when I discovered very quickly whether they have a clue what the imputed righteousness of Christ means, how central it is, how it's the heart of the gospel, how it's the foundation of peace, what peace is, and how it is brought about through that single atoning work. Stravinskis had no idea that this isn't this isn't the norm of what is discussed in the ivory covered halls of Ivy League schools. And so he's frustrated. So here comes the Romans 4 section. Eight, when Paul says, blessed is the man to whom God will not impute sin. Who's the blessed man? First of all, it's Christ. Catch that. Catch that. Did you catch that? His first response is that it's Christ. Now think about it. Christ is a blessed man because God will not impute Christ's sin to Christ. Here's a man who has never in his life, evidently, at least in any reflective fashion, considered who is the blessed man of Romans 4. Am I the blessed man? It's astonishing when you think about it. But we go on. So Christ is the blessed man to whom God will not impute sin. That's what he's talking about when in Romans 4, 6, he says Paul speaks about the blessedness upon the man that God, that all of a sudden he's now talking about Christ. So that's, that's the only fulfillment of Romans 4, 8. No. Who else then? Are you the blessed man? I hope so. You hope so. so Did you catch that? I hope so. I hope so. You see... Thank you. I'll, I'll, you can go ahead and take that down. There is no consistent answer from Roman Catholicism. Because there is no non-imputation of sin, because there is no imputation of the righteousness of Christ. Which he just admitted. Commit a mortal sin, it's imputed to you. Commit a venial sin, it's imputed to you. So who is the blessed man to whom the Lord will never impute sin? The biblical answer is, in Romans chapter 4, every single believer... That's how you have peace with God. That's what's going to lead us to Romans 5.1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what you give up. That should have been the answer to the title of the video. What do you give up? Peace. Peace. The ability to have peace with God. Because you, you no longer have a finished work. You now have to go to a man who in his ordination is identified as an alter Christus, another Christ, through whom you gain access to some of the merit of Christ, but not enough to perfect you. 
you can no longer come to a finished work, the cost is peace. Because that's what the issue is. Sola Scriptura is important because it has to deal with this. Mary is important because it has to deal with this. What is this? It's the gospel. It's how you have peace with God. You don't have peace with God through your philosophical syllogisms. You have peace with God by resting in the finished work of Jesus Christ on your behalf. And if that's not where you've been resting, if, if, you're, if your peace with God has been based upon how well you work philosophical systems, then you've never understood in the first place. But that's the cost for anybody. Even some of the things that Braxton Hunter said made me go, that's interesting. Um, maybe he's thinking about some of these things. What's the cost for anybody? Peace with God. Peace with God. That's the cost. That's the cost. So we're going to listen to a couple other things here because that wasn't the main thing. I'm sorry that I'm going longer here. I wasn't playing and playing that, but there was a lot of good stuff in there. Um, so um, here we go. Like a Bayesian analysis of this, of, of the papacy itself. So like take each data point that is relevant to the papacy, like these different verses in the Bible, like Matthew 16, like Luke 22, like John 21, and then actually ask the question, like, how likely is this data given the papacy? How likely is this data given the falsity of the papacy? Plug that into an actual Bayesian calculation and just sort of see where the numbers go from there. And then also plug in all of the different arguments from Gavin Ortland and Mike Winger against the papacy and just kind of see, like, where do the numbers actually fit in here? And where should my credence in this doctrine actually be? As opposed to just being swayed by, you know, some good sounding rhetoric or like, yeah, that sounds like a really good objection to Catholicism. Like, I'm just going to be stay Protestant. But then actually do the hard work of weighing this, this, these different pieces of data and actually getting a probability that is, is based on good reason. And so I just felt like doing a, a sort of Bayesian analysis of the papacy was like the best way to go for me. And I realized a lot of people are going to Where are you at in that percentage? Bayesian analysis— Bayesian analysis. Does, does that include, uh, for example, you just mentioned Matthew 16, John 21. Um, Von Dullinger and the Pope and the Council from 1869 quoted, of all the fathers who interpret these passages in the Gospels, Matthew 16, 18, John 21, 17, not a single one applies them to the Roman bishops as Peter's successors. How many fathers have busied themselves these texts, yet not one of those commentaries we possess, Origen, Chrysostom, Hilary, Augustine, Cyril, Theodoret, and those whose interpretations are collected in catenas, has dropped the faintest hint that the primacy of Rome is the consequence of the commission and promise to Peter. Not one of them has explained the rock or foundation which Christ would build his church, the office given to Peter to be transmitted to his successors. But they understood it by either Christ himself or Peter's confession of faith in Christ, often both together. Or else they thought Peter was the foundation equally with all the other apostles, the twelve being together the foundation stones of the church. The fathers could the less recognize in the power of the keys and the power of binding and loosing any special prerogative or lordship of the Roman bishop, inasmuch as what is obvious to any one at first sight, they did not regard the power first given to Peter and afterwards conferred on all the apostles as anything peculiar to him or hereditary in the line of Roman bishops. And they held the symbols of the keys as meaning just the same as the figurative expression of binding and loosing. So, 
Um, one of the earliest books I read when I started getting this is called The Infallibility of the Church by George Salmon. And so I, you know, I would ask um, Cameron, have, where does this fit into your analysis? Have you you worked through all this? How about William Whitaker? Good, G O O D E. Um, Chemnitz. I just mentioned about eight or nine volumes right there. I mean, this is just one volume, but Good, Whitaker, Chemnitz. I think that's about nine volumes right there. Is that? Do you realize that your analysis will never end? It can't. I mean, I have, I have a massive selection of citations here on all sorts of issues from early church fathers and Roman dog, dogmatic statements and and just all sorts of uh, things in regards to you know Augustine's. Let's see. Da, 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 da. Yeah, just. So many things marked here in regards to the things you'd never find in Jurgens, for example, um, that are all extremely relevant, extremely important. What, what if there are two or three pa- pages in here that would completely alter your Bayesian analysis? What do you do with your soul? You see, philosophical analysis of arguments and statements is not how you determine these things. I commend you for looking at things. I'm not sure how broadly you've been looking at things. I commend you for doing so, but there's only one certain guide in these issues. And it's what's called scripture. And all the rest of this stuff, you're you're looking at scripture as if it's one of these things out here. Rather than a consistent word that answers these questions. That's a problem. That's a, that's a very serious problem. I continue. I realize a lot of people are going to Where are you to at in that percentage-wise if we're looking at a loading bar? So the, the percentage as of late, I think, is in the... It's either in the 80s or the 90s for so we're getting close. the papacy. Oh, okay. I, no, I was saying like in a loading bar, like in, in terms of how much data how close you are to being done with that process. Oh, oh. Although oh, I okay. think you may have just given me something even more interesting. No. So you're 90, <laughs> you think that Bayesian calculation gives you the papacy as valid. Currently, you have it up to 80 to, 80 to 90%. 90%. And yeah. when we say If I had my computer, I could just pull it up and, sh- and show you. <laughs> 80 to 90%. Based on what? Based on your fallible understanding of the facts that you have currently encountered. I don't know how much you've studied uh, the pornocracy. I don't know how much you've studied um, the uh, rise of monarchical episcopate in Rome. Uh, I, I don't. I don't. I don't know. But you're the one putting the data in. How how biased are you? You're the one assigning the probabilities. <laughs> the, you, you, at the end, will tell other people they should be doing the same thing and should listen to what you're saying, but you're the one doing all the assigning of probabilities and everything else. Why, why you? I, I, I don't know. It, it's strange. So one, the, the, the big thing here, and this is a long, a long section. This is the main thing I wanted to get to. Sorry. Um, this is a topic 
that we have dealt with for decades. If you go on to AOMN.org and you put in Isaiah 22, you will find article after article after article going back in the 1990s. Going back and forth with Roman Catholic apologists on their argument about the keys of David and Peter and Isaiah 22, Matthew 16, etc., etc. This is in the debates that we, we debated this when I debated uh, Scott Butler and Roberts and Janice at Boston College in 93 or 4, 90, I have been 93, 94, somewhere around there, uh, which is online. And again, in, in most of the papacy debates, because it's a popular thing. Well, Cameron admits in what we're about to listen to that that's one of the biggest chunks in favor of the papacy in his calculations is this argument but shows no familiarity whatsoever with a rather forceful refutation of it. We'll share it after we listen. I'm going to go ahead and, since it's taken some time, we're going to crank it up to 1.2 so we can get through this just a little bit quicker. Now, however, there's one piece of data that is weighing heavily on the side of the papacy that I'm very tentative on at this point. And it's the typological connection between Isaiah 22 and Matthew 16. Basically, in Matthew 16, that's the passage about uh, Peter being the rock, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, whatever you... Uh, and, and then he gives Peter the keys to the kingdom, and then says, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And there's this connection that some people have been making between that and another office that... Let me just mention, in passing, really quickly, I'm not going to expand upon it, but as I've pointed out, in debates with Jerry Matitix at Denver Seminary and people for years, Doso in Matthew 16, 19 is future. I will give to you. Not He just said he gave Peter the keys. It's future. I will give. And so I, I, would, I would ask, when did, when did the Lord Jesus give Peter in exclusion to the other apostles? Because that's Rome's teaching. She anathematizes you if you say otherwise. So when did Peter receive the keys and an authority that the other apostles did not themselves receive? Because the early church didn't, didn't believe that. Okay, so Rome will say, this is what we has been believed, but it's, it's just a lie. It's just not true. Um, so, and that's in the dogmatic stuff. So you got lies and dogmatic stuff, which you have to believe by faith. So there, there, there are issues to be dealt with there. But um, when did Peter receive the keys? Because it didn't in Matthew 16, it's future tense, doso. So, the only answers are, if you look at Matthew, you, you can, Matthew chapter 18. Jesus gives the apostles that authority. But Peter's not singled out, he's just one of the apostles. They all receive it together. So if, if that's not it, because that would be all of them together, then Matthew never recorded Peter receiving these keys. So the central key issue, key issue, um, not even recorded? Or if it is recorded, it's Matthew 18, and he doesn't receive it specially. So just point out that there's a problem that both historically and exegetically at that, at that point. Located in Isaiah 22 by a guy named Eliakim. And Eliakim, there's very similar language. They say uh, Swan Sona is like the main proponent of this type of argument. He says that there's a typological connection like a sort of fulfillment of the Old Testament to the New Testament in Peter. And this office was successive. 
It was like second in command, which would make sense with Peter being second in command to Jesus. And so there's basically what I found is that that data, if, if there is this connection, this typological connection between Peter and Eliakim, if that is real, then that is pretty likely if the papacy is true mm -hmm. to get some, some type of connection like this. But if there, you know, if, uh, if the papacy is not true, how likely is it that we would have this connection? And that seems pretty low. Like it seems pretty low There's that we two would have great debates recently on this issue that I think we should point people to. I was thinking of this when you last night speaking at a yeah. local church mentioned someone was asking, well, how do I learn, you know, the, what other people believe in a clear way? And I was thinking debates is a good way because you're not just getting that opponent through the lens of um, your guy. Right. But yeah. you're getting you're getting both yeah. on their own terms. Yeah. Um, and there are two great debates on this that I can think of. And I think one of them might have been on your channel. One was Gavin Ortland and Swan Sona. Swan Sona. That one is fantastic. It's so good. And there, since you kind of enunciated that the Catholic position on yeah. that, um, Gavin Ortland's primary concern is and, and it's a more it's a I way love of saying, I love the way he says it too. His, uh, his term terminology or a, what is it? Typology run amok. Yeah. But the thing, but the thing about it with, with that is it put legs on what I said to you on the phone. That was my concern, mm -hmm. which is I, this is where I feel like the squirrely stuff gets in. <laughs> That's my Protestant take. And that was a way of saying what he's saying there. And what I needed was, or what I would want to see is some didactic <clears throat> teaching about this um, and a typology or just the teaching, but the typology without the didactic teaching is what is difficult. But, um, I see what you mean. If that is an intended typological connection, yeah, um, then that I can see why someone might see. Okay, that looks that would very be very. Much, shouldn't Peter yeah. then function according to that typology? Is that kind of how it goes? How likely? So yeah, when we when and it looks like he did, and it looks like the Pope. Yeah, 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 and then and then the question is, how likely is this data given the papacy? And that's that's fairly expected. Like mm -hmm. I would I would I put it at like 0.5, mm -hmm. like as likely as not mm -hmm. that we would have this data. But then how likely is this data if the papacy is not true? I put that as pretty low. So like 0.01, like 1% chance that we'd have this typological connection and yeah, and, and the papacy is not true. So what that's doing, that's doing a lot of work in the overall case that I'm looking at in the Wait, Bayesian analysis. That is or is not already in your it's numbers? Doing, it's in the numbers right now and that's how I have it set up. So I'm giving weight, a lot of weight to this typological issue. Now, the reason why I'm, I'm still tentative and why I'm not Catholic at this point, given the numbers, is because I'm not sold on the typological argument. Okay, so... There you have um, Isaiah 22, and <clears throat> I listened to the rest, and this the important stuff never came up. So I, I, I had no, no reason to believe, I had no evidence given to me um, that, that Cameron has heard the other side. There's, I'm not the only one that's responded to this. Uh, lots of people have. It's in print. It's all over the place. But again... Good, Whitaker, Salmon, um, they're not on a lot of Christian bookstore shelves if there are Christian bookstores anymore. And so I don't know if he's been directed to them, but let's look at Isaiah 22. Uh, if you start back at verse 15, you, you have a oracle given to Shebna, who is in charge of the royal house, household, but he is going to be pulled down. Verse 19, I'll depose you from your office, and I will pull you down from your station, then it will come about in that day that I will summon my servant Heliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with your tunic and tie your sash securely about him. I will entrust him with your authority, and he will become a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Then I will set the key of the house of David on his shoulder. When he opens, no one will shut, 
When he shuts, no one will open, and I will drive him like a peg in a firm place, and he will become a throne of glory to his father's house. Now, again, as I said, put in Isaiah chapter 22, aomen.org, you'll find decades ago, lengthy discussions uh, with Roman Catholic apologists on these issues. But the argument is, here is the key of David. The key of the house of David is on his shoulder. Now, a couple things. First, I would like to know who the first person in church history was who ever made a connection between Isaiah chapter 22 and the papacy. I've been asking this question for decades. Um, I don't know of anybody in the first millennium. It's not the teaching of the early church fathers. It's not the teaching of the early Roman bishops who were very quick to find arguments for themselves. It is not a teaching of the early church. It's just not there. I'd like to know. If, 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 you, if you find it, let me know. Because I've been asking for a long time. So this is a, as with so much of Rome's teaching about the papacy. And remember, Rome, the, the rise of the papacy was dependent upon a tremendous amount of um, apocryphal literature. Literature that was, that was pseudonymous. So, forged. And so, uh, the Isidorian decretals, the pseudo-Isidorian decretals, the donation of Constantine, these were vital in the establishment of the papacy. And Rome today admits they're all, they're all forgeries. They're all fake. Without them, there would be no papacy today. So, historically, the foundations of papacy have been eroded down to a sliver. And I've still encountered Roman Catholics in doing debates with them where they used uh, forgeries in their argumentation. They didn't know they were forgeries, but they were so common in Roman Catholic... <coughs> Roman Catholic argumentation. It's hard to get, get rid of. <coughs> so, what about Isaiah twenty two twenty two? If you're going to ask about the key of the house of David, why not go to the New Testament fulfillment of it? There is. Revelation 3, 7. The risen Lord Jesus says, and the angel of the church of Philadelphia write, he who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens, says this. Now, 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 now wait a minute. If you look at uh, cross-references to this, they'll, they'll take you back to Isaiah chapter 22. It's the same language that's being used here. So, who has the key of David, who opens and no one shut, and who shuts and no one opens. This is the risen Lord Jesus Christ speaking to the churches, and it says he has the key of David. Peter doesn't have it. Well, Peter was dead by then. Well, but if there's succession, then... Jesus has it. Jesus reigns by that power. The only New Testament fulfillment that you're going to find puts the key safely in Jesus' hands, not Peter's. So you can't find me, anybody in the early church that viewed it differently 
The New Testament gives a different fulfillment, but that's functioning in your calculations in a major way to make you 80 to 90% certain of the claims of the papacy. This is why you don't determine these things based upon you assigning various percentage weights to arguments and putting them into a calculator. The scriptures teach us the form of the early church. And what Rome has had to do, if, if you're familiar with the development hypothesis, if you're familiar with John Henry Cardinal Newman, you know that to substantiate the modern Roman Catholic view of the, the Pope is infallible, uh, the head of the church, all the rest of this kind of stuff, that the, the exalted position. Newman knew that's not what the early church believed. Newman knew it didn't function that way. Why, why have the Council of Nicaea? Why not just go to the Pope in Rome? How about it? Homo usius? Homo usius? Hetero usius? Just go to the Pope in Rome. We don't need a council. And even at that council, the Roman legates were not relevant. Oh, later later forged stories tried to make them relevant because it was sort of embarrassing, but... And who was it that defended Nicaea in the 40 years afterwards when it became the minority view? Wasn't the Bishop of Rome. Liberius gave in. It was Alexander. Alexandria and Athanasius, Alexander and then his successor, Athanasius, they're the ones that... Hmm. Wow, how'd that happen? There's just so much. So much. You, you, you don't do this by calculations. You do this by recognizing what the Word of God teaches. And the Word of God does not teach that there is a Pope at the head of the church. Um, Peter, when he writes, calls himself a fellow elder. He does not call, call himself the vicar of Christ or anything along those lines. And the early, the early church's interpretation of those key texts is not the modern Roman Catholic interpretation of those texts either. That's just the reality. So I wanted to respond to those things because people will hear this kind of argumentation. And um, because people are not overly familiar with early church history or they're not familiar with uh, especially Old Testament usage, typologies and things like that, fulfillment in the New Testament, in Jesus himself in Revelation chapter 3, they're like, oh, that, that, that sounds really interesting and and yet it's just, it, it's as bogus a form of argumentation as all the stuff that Rome uses <clears throat> to try to say that because Solomon brought a throne in for his mother, that this has something to do with Mary and all the rest of the typological wahooness that comes into the various um, Marian dogmas as well. Um, you can prove anything this way. You really can, as long as you want to. You can come up with something. You can come up with something. So we wanted to respond to that. Now, I noticed um, that uh, Cameron has been commenting on, uh, I hereby invite me to come on my channel to discuss Catholicism, that is, unless he'd rather talk about me than to me. I, I, this is why I've just not gotten the idea, Cameron, that there really was any reason to do so. You've never been overly nice about about our, our exchanges because I've been very straightforward 
from the beginning and saying, this is where this is where this leads. Because I was talking to people about this subject when you were five. So I just I, I, I'm like, I know where this is going to go. And it's like, well, if, if you don't indulge me in this and you're being a mean, nasty person, I've not been mean, nasty. In fact, if you really sat back, who has been the most um, pastoral for you? person who warns you about where you're going and what the cost would be, because I think peace with God's an important thing. I really do. So if you want to do something like this, um, we've got the setup, you've got the setup, but we'll do it here. So you let me know and we can, we can set it up and we can talk about Isaiah 22 and we can talk about the papacy and we can talk about the bodily assumption of Mary. Because you do realize that if the, the, the one thing, let me tell you just one quick story. Uh, I've got a minute and a half here before we go to Jumbo and Rich is like, I don't care. Um, <clears throat> I forget. I, I, I looked it up just recently what year it was. But it's been about a decade, I think now. Because we were here. We met in my office. I met with a Presbyterian pastor who was uh, doing the swimming in the Tiber thing. And his primary issues were on Sola Scriptura, and so we talked about some of those things. But he was a pastor of a, as I recall, a PCA church. <clears throat> a fairly large one. And you're not. And I don't get the feeling you're at all reformed. And so some of the things I said to him, I would not necessarily say to you in the same way. But when we got done talking about Solo Scriptura, or at least responding to some of the things he was saying, and I knew I wasn't going to satisfy him. I could tell he was way, way far gone at the time we talked. I looked him in the eye, and I said, first thing that I'm going to say to you, and I'm going to be very, and I was very straightforward with him. <laughs> I, was, I was very straightforward with him. Because these, th- these are eternal issues. You don't play games with this. I'm not a modern you have to protect everybody's feelings stuff. We're talking about eternal stuff here. And I said to him, I said, if you're going to become a Roman Catholic, you need to go all the way. You need to be a real Roman Catholic. You need to believe what Roman Catholicism teaches. All of it. All the Marian stuff, the stuff that makes you queasy right now, because you really know that that's, that's not what the apostles were teaching and that's not apostolic. And, and, and in fact, the last stuff that has been defined in the past hundred and 70 some odd years, um, the early church, church would have gone, what? Really? That's part of the gospel? The, never heard of it. What? Um, so I said, you need to go all the way. Don't be one of those mealy-mouthed, wishy-washy, ecumenical, I could have easily gone to Canterbury or Constantinople, but I decided to go to Rome type people. If you're going to become a Roman Catholic, go all the way. Believe what Roman Catholicism actually teaches. And buy all of it. Go whole hog. Because what you're doing is you're trading the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ, which you have stood before your people. And this is where I don't know where you are, but he had stood before his people and it proclaimed to them that for him and for them, their only peace with God was because 
of the imputed righteousness of Christ. It's all his work. We are the blessed man to whom God will never impute sin because our sins have been imputed to him in our place. But you have to have a finished work for that. And you're giving that up. You're trading that in. You're getting on the treadmill. You're going to the mass. You're seeing the priest. You're giving all of it up. So go all the way. Don't try to hold on to stuff that... How can you hold on to stuff that's all self-contradictory? How can you on one hand say, yes, finished work of Christ, sufficient for me. And on this hand, mass, propitiatory sacrifice, got to keep going. Not perfected by it. Go all the way. He didn't even know what to say to me. But I would say it to you. I don't know if you have ever stood before people, as I have, and said to them, my only hope is found, not just in the nebulous sense of Jesus, because you see what Rome does is, well, Jesus gives us the sacraments, you see. My only hope is in the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. My only hope is to be the blessed man. And I can be the blessed man because I have a finished work. I can be the blessed man because I'm not the one working. I'm the one believing. And my faith is credited as righteousness. And Rome anathematized that view at Trent. You can, you, can, you can go with your modern interpreters if you want, who stand on their head and spin in circles and use essential oils to try to make it say something it didn't say. Go back to Trent. Read the people who were writing at the time of Trent. Read what they said. They said what they meant. And popes afterwards said what they meant. (laughs) Again, do I think the current pope believes any of this? No, not really. But that's the whole problem. That's that's the issue, isn't it? So, these are eternal issues. They are vitally important issues. And... I believe that there are people within the Roman Catholic Church that I'll see in heaven because they're inconsistent with their own teaches. But I am extremely concerned about anyone who would be outside the Roman Catholic Church, know what the truth is, and give it up to go in for that. It's one thing to be in, be ignorant, and be inconsistent. It's another to be outside and give up the truth and then claim, oh, I didn't know. That's big stuff. That's important stuff. And I'll be perfectly honest with you. The only people who are actually your friends right now are the people who are talking straight to you. Not the people who are going, oh, you're, it's just so interesting to watch your journey. They're not your friends. They're not your friends. It's important stuff. Hopefully that's useful to everybody. Thanks for watching the program today. And as far as I know, we're supposed to be back on Thursday. We'll see. Thanks for watching. God bless.